Okay. Praise God. Can everybody hear me okay? Also, I don't know if people online can, I have moved this a little bit, just if Dave could check. I'm still in shot for the people watching online. I think there's one of them. So just make sure for that one person that I'm on screen. <laughs> Praise God. Well, thank you um, for the prayer, Dave. And wasn't that an incredible confession that we just read? Um, that certainly challenged me and spoke to me, you know, how do we treat the Word of God? How do we receive the Word of God when it's preached? Uh, it isn't about me and me being important. It, it is about the Word that I preach. And here I am this afternoon preaching not my words, not my opinions, but God's words. And so we receive that with a, a level of solemnity, a level of uh, concentration, to be honest, where we have to kind of gird ourselves up and ready ourselves to receive the Word of God. So let's do that, shall we? Let's uh, open our Bibles. We're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 13 today. We are finishing off our mini-series on prayer. This is the final message in what has been a really interesting uh, time and season looking at the subject of prayer. And so today marks the culmination of that. Depending on what English translation you have, you might have a slightly shorter or longer version. In the ESV, the English Standard Version, it reads, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. However, if you have uh, a New King James or a King James Version, you will have the added uh, doxology on the end of it, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory now and forever, or words to that effect. Um, we're going to be primarily focusing today on the first part of that verse. Um, the latter part is important, and I believe it's important to include that doxology. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory into our prayer life. It's a, it's a, it's a sound of praise, and it's true. Uh, the reason why it isn't in some translations, the ESV um, and, and others, is simply that that particular doxology doesn't appear in the earliest Greek manuscripts. However, uh, it is, I think, uh, rightful also to include it um, because many of the church fathers also included it. So, uh, however, whenever it came into our Bibles, it came in pretty early. Uh, we don't know for sure, but that's why there's that discrepancy, just to answer that question for you. Sometimes people will say things like, oh, they've taken that out of the Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. You know, people will say they've taken it out. And often the reason is that there will be what is called a, um, a textual variant, a textual variant. So some of the early Greek manuscripts that we have that inform our translations of the Bible uh, there may be a slight discrepancy uh, in amongst them, things that might be in, in some and left out in others. It does not mean uh, that the Word of God has changed. It doesn't mean um, that it is fallible all of a sudden. It just simply means that um, some scribes uh, copied things down slightly differently. Most of the textual variants are slips of the pen, differences in grammar or spelling of words. And so no major Christian doctrine hangs on any disputed text. Um, which is great to know. 
So we're going to be lead, uh, reading from this, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, and we're going to be hopefully drawing something super practical out of this for today that's going to help us in our prayer lives. That's my hope anyway. You know, that's, that's what I hope to come out of this series with, is a, is a more vital, more vibrant prayer life. Um, and so in the church, I, I want to see HCC alive and on fire with prayer. That's why we consistently do these 715 prayer meetings as often as we can, you know, um, is to stir ourselves up uh, in prayer. So I hope that this message today is an encouragement to you. Now, this verse... This particular verse, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If you know anything about apologetics or about theology or anything about your Bible, really, um, and if you've been a Christian for a long time, you'll know that this verse is arguably one of the most contentious verses in the whole of the New Testament. And of course, I managed to get it and I fell on the week when I had to preach and not Bucky. But uh, it presents us with what seems to be quite a challenge on the face of it. Um, however, when this verse is rightly understood, it will be a very powerful and indeed practical aid to your prayer life. So to help us get the most out of the verse that we have before us in the next sort of half an hour, 40 minutes or so, um, I am going to break this verse down using the following questions, okay? The first question we're going to ask of this text is, what is temptation? What is temptation? The second question we're going to ask is simply, who is doing the tempting who is it who is doing the tempting? Our third question will be, what are the purposes of temptation? Fourthly, how are we tempted? How is it methodically that we actually are tempted? What does that look like? And finally, why should we pray earnestly to be delivered? from temptation. So let's look at this first question. What is temptation? It's a word we all know. We're very familiar with the concept experientially, aren't we? We all, as Christians, walk through seasons and moments of temptation. But one thing to note that's really important is that not just Christians experience temptation. I know people that would never darken the doorway of a church, but will talk to me about being tempted, right? Have you ever experienced this? It's just common to all humanity, isn't it? People just know that there is such a thing as temptation, that it's something that they should resist. However, at the outset, I want to make this point and make it very clearly. The concept of temptation makes absolutely no sense at all without God. The concept of temptation makes no sense at all without God. Why is that? Temptation only makes sense if there is a right and a wrong. 
a real right and a wrong, an objective standard of what is truly right and what is truly wrong, only then can you really be tempted to do what's wrong, okay? If atheism is true, let, let's for a minute just, let's just for a minute stand on enemy ground and let's assume that there is no God, okay? There's no God and no purpose or design at all in nature. No ultimate purpose for our existence and no ultimate meaning. Let's for a moment suppose that all creatures in the world, including us, we're just simply existing by random chance. We are the products of blind evolutionary processes that never had us in mind. In that kind of a world, there can be no such thing as right and wrong. Things just are, they just exist. There's no rhyme or reason, even Richard Dawkins will admit this. In his book, The Blind Watchmaker, he said, there is nothing in this universe but blind, pitiless indifference. From the mouth of one of the world's leading atheists, if atheism is, is true, there is no such thing as temptation because there's no such thing as right and wrong. Temptation assumes, it needs to have a moral law. It needs God in order to make sense. Yet even people who don't believe in God believe in temptation. What does this tell us? Well, it means this, that as humans, no matter what we believe, we still carry in us the truth and the echoes of the fact that we're created by God. Even people who would deny the existence of God still live like he does exist, right? When we read Romans 1, it says that no one will have an excuse or an apologia, a reason on that day of judgment. Nobody will be able to wag the finger at God and say, you never gave me enough evidence to believe in you. The Bible says that God has made himself clearly evident in what? In the things that were made. And that includes both physical things, the natural world, our physical bodies, but also invisible entities, such as the moral laws, which are very real. If somebody tells you they don't believe in morality, steal their wallet. See what they do then. I'm joking, of course. Please don't go and steal people's wallets. But temptation for me, and the concept of temptation, is yet more evidence of our God in creation. Let's move on past that point. As a youngster, I used to actually go fishing fairly regularly. I used to go along to a little fishing club on the canal and I'd go out, I'd take my, my fishing pole with me and I would catch uh, you know, anything I could in, in that canal. I used to get perch, gudgeon, roach. Um, you know, I used to do it fairly regularly, I used to really enjoy it. And occasionally I would get taken out with friends to go pool fishing. We'd go to a big pond and we'd fish for bigger fish. We'd fish for the carp, you know, mirror carp, ghost carp, common carp, whatever we could get. Um, we even went sea fishing once, fishing for mackerel with my family. 
which was great fun. What I learned when I went fishing, I learned a few things, but one of them was that you don't catch anything without bait. You don't catch anything without bait. It's absurd, isn't it, to think about a fisherman who would go out to the canal with his pole. He would take all that time plumbing the depths and making sure his float was just right. And then you said, what are you baiting with? He said, I don't need bait. What are you talking about? I, I, just, I just put my hook in there and, and I just wait and see what happens. You'd, you'd think you'd gone bananas, wouldn't you? Fishing works only with bait, okay? And the better the bait is, likely the better the catch will be. Moreover, the bait has to be something that the fish actually like. You can try putting a clod of earth on the end of your hook. You can try it. It's probably going to weigh the line down pretty nicely, but guess what? You're not going to catch any fish. Why? Because fish don't particularly like eating mud, okay? The bait has to appeal to the fish. They have to have an appetite for it. They've got to like the look of it. Let me say to you, temptation is bait. Temptation is bait. It's something that to you looks appealing. It looks good. It's something that speaks to an appetite within you, okay? If it didn't look good, if it didn't appeal to an appetite within you, guess what? It wouldn't be very tempting. But it is. However, that tasty, delicious-looking morsel, that bait that you see that we will call temptation today, it's covering a hook. It's covering a hook. You don't see it at first, but hidden under that tasty little morsel that is so pleasing to the eye, so ingratiating to the senses, there is a hook. What looks on the face of it benign turns out to be very dangerous. So not only is temptation bait, temptation is deception. It's deception on the face of it. Whatever it is that looks tempting to you, that looks good, carries in it a hidden danger that you don't see at face value. That's what makes it so dangerous. Furthermore, that hook hidden within the bait is on the end of a line. It's not just hovering there in the water, is it? That hook that I'm fishing with is connected to a line which is on the end of a rod, which is being held by me, the fisherman. And I have a desire. I have an intention. I'm not just sat there randomly or idly. I'm there with an intention. My intention is to hook that fish, to reel him in, to capture him. If I'm sea fishing, maybe to kill him and eat him. Temptation is the same. It's the same. There is someone at the end of that hook who means you harm. They have deliberately baited that hook in order to catch you. It was no accident that you came by the bait. When you are tempted in a day-to-day -day way, as you go about your business, that temptation is exactly like the fisherman's bait. 
It was put there intentionally to hook you, to capture you. And at the other end of it, there is somebody who means you harm. Temptation is a trap. So to answer the question, what is temptation? Temptation is bait. It looks appealing. It looks good. It speaks to your appetites. Secondly, temptation is deception. On the face of it, it's a lie. Think about it. In the Garden of Eden, the devil lied, didn't he? Has God really said? It was that first little question that he was intending to take the legs from under Adam and Eve with what they knew to be true about God. Temptation is deception. And thirdly, temptation is a trap. At the other end of that line is somebody very evil who wants to do you harm. They want to capture you. They intend to do you wrong. So the second question we have is, who is doing this tempting? Who does the tempting? Now this is the part of the sermon where we're going to have to get a little bit theological, okay? So I want you to try and stick with me as best as you can. Now, in this church, we try, or I try, and Bucky tries to do the best that we possibly can to be scriptural, okay? It is important that you hear the word of God and not my words or my opinions, but as best and as clearly as you possibly can to hear the words the Holy Spirit has written down for us in sacred scripture, okay? So that means we have to do something called exegesis, okay? That is finding out the true meaning of God's word, not reading our own meanings in. That's what is called eisegesis, from the Greek word eis, meaning into, okay? We do not read our own meanings into the text. We derive our meanings from the text. So there's no getting around the words of this text in the original language. The original Greek manuscripts read in unison, lead us not into temptation. It does not read, do not allow us to fall into temptation. It does not read, may we not be led into temptation. That Greek verb in the original language is active on the part of God. Lead us not, God, do not lead us into. It's not passive, it's active. And that presents us with some level of difficulty. Because Jesus appears to be saying here that God may lead us into temptation. That would be a legitimate inference from the text, wouldn't it? That if we have to pray God don't lead us in, there's a chance that he actually may lead us into temptation. However, this is the problem. Immediately, we know in the book of James, in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. So, is Jesus contradicting James? Is James contradicting Jesus? What's, what's going on here? Some in the church have gone so far as actually to change the words of the Lord's prayer to try and resolve this contradiction. A bit awkward. 
Pope Francis actually approved this word change to the Lord's Prayer in 2019. So in a Catholic liturgical book, instead of reading, lead us not into temptation, he has now written it, do not let us fall into temptation. It's a slight change. Some have preferred to translate that Greek noun, parasmos, temptation, as test or trial rather than temptation. So they may translate it as um, do not lead us into testing or do not lead us into trials. However, I think that this is a wrong translation. Yes, that word parasmon can be translated and is translated on numerous occasions in the New Testament as trials or testing, uh, not as many times as it's translated uh, temptation. However, in the Greek language, the same as in many other languages, it isn't just the word itself that tells you how that text should be translated. You've also got to look at the context, okay? Context is king, as they say, when we read in our Bibles. That's why whenever somebody just quotes a verse to you, anytime somebody just wants to quote a verse to you and say, you see, I told you, I told you, right, you're wrong about this, because look, Always go to the context. Read that verse as it appears in Scripture because context is king. Put that verse back in its original context. And here, what have we got before lead us not into temptation? We've got forgive us our what? Our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us. We've got sin, okay? Sin is the context here. And then after, we've got deliver us from evil, or the evil one, okay? We've got evil and sin together. So, parasmos here means temptation, okay? That's what we can translate that word as, and that is the correct translation of it. And nearly all English translations render it temptation. So, how do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of this? How is Jesus not saying that God actually tempts us? Well, praise God for Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He rightly pointed out that there is a great deal of difference between tempting somebody and leading them into temptation. There's a whole world of difference. Jesus doesn't say, pray this. Do not tempt us, Lord. Deliver us from evil. He doesn't say that, does he? That's not in the text. Instead, he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some translations say evil one. But the point being is that God is being asked by us in this prayer not to lead us or bring us into a moment or a season of temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one, to deliver us from the power of evil. So it's the evil one who's doing the tempting. It's the evil one who we must be delivered from because it's from him we're, being, we're asking God to deliver us. Does that make sense? There's a whole world of difference between being led into temptation and actually being tempted by God. Jesus is not saying God is tempting you. So now that matter is settled. God is not the one doing the tempting. He never has, he never will tempt you or anyone. Jesus isn't saying, pray to God, don't tempt me. 
but don't bring us into temptation. So is it true then? Is it true that God, your loving Father, may at times lead you into seasons or moments of temptation? It's an uncomfortable thought. But let's examine for a moment what Scripture has to say on this matter. Proverbs 17 verse 3 says, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. The Lord tests hearts. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, Jesus is actually led out into the wilderness by God the Holy Spirit in order to be tempted. And of course, how could we ignore the book of Job? The unwelcome visitor at the table of charismatic Christianity in this day and age. How can we forget poor old Job? God absolutely brings Job into a serious season of temptation, testing, and trial at the hands of Satan. Now, let's be careful to say that it is not God who is guilty of killing Job's kids. We all know that. It's the devil who did that. God was not guilty of killing his servants, of having his house blown down, of causing sores to come on his body. That was the devil. But it was certainly God who let the devil do that, who allowed Job to be led into this season of trial. So why on earth would God allow on occasion for us to be brought into temptation? What were his purposes? And this draws us on to our third question. What are the purposes of temptation? Now you remember in the story of Joseph and Jacob and the patriarchs, right? They've all gone down to Egypt. There's been this horrendous famine and Joseph has risen up to second in charge of all Egypt and he has saved the people from famine, from death. And his father, Jacob, way advanced in years, very old at this point, finally comes to his death. And after Jacob dies, you might remember in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph's brothers start getting a little jittery, don't they? They start getting nervous. They're thinking, now that dad's died, He's not here to protect us any longer. And Joseph, he's going to take revenge. He's going to have his way with us after all these years because of what we did to him. So they come to, jo to Joseph. They beg him for forgiveness. They even offer themselves to be his slaves in return. Please forgive us. We'll be your slaves. We'll do anything. And Joseph responds with grace and forgiveness. Isn't that a picture of how God responds to us? When we come to him and we've messed up horribly, when we really are guilty and we really do deserve divine retribution, how does he respond exactly how Joseph responds with grace and forgiveness? It's like a mini picture of what happens in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? But what's really interesting about this passage in, in Genesis 50 is how Joseph responds, what he says to them. He says this to them, as for you, 
you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. He meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph says his brothers meant evil towards him, but that God meant it for good. That's one set of events, but two wills, okay? One set of events, but two wills and two purposes at work in the same set of events. Joseph's brother's wills, which were for evil, and God's will, which was for good. I want you to note that it doesn't say what you meant for evil, God used for good. It doesn't say that. It says God meant it for good. It's a very different word. It speaks of God actually intending, sovereignly decreeing those same events. Although it was his brothers performing them and therefore his brothers who were guilty of that sin. Incredibly deep and nuanced. And that's how the Bible speaks about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It is nuanced. You can't flatten it out. You can't make it simple. You know, we just have to believe what the Bible says about these things. Man is responsible. Yes. But God is sovereign. Yes. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So what does that tell us about our question? What are the purposes in temptation? Well, it means that in our temptations, there are two sets of purposes here, okay? There is the purpose and the will of the devil. And on occasions when God allows us to be brought into temptation, there is the purpose and will of God. The Bible is clear about what the purposes and will of the devil are towards you, okay? His purposes in your temptation is that you might be devoured, that you might be brought to your knees. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's also called the tempter, the deceiver, the father of what? The father of lies. The devil is the fisherman coming to put a hook through your lip and put you in the keep net. He wants to devour you. That's his purpose in tempting you, to destroy you, that you might trip up into sin and ultimately be devoured by it. How many times have you seen this in your life? Christians that you once walked with who tripped up into temptation and began a lifestyle of sin and now are nowhere, gone. It's like they've fallen off the face of the earth. That's what the devil wants for you. That's what the devil wants for me. That's his purpose. But what about God? Should he allow for you to be led into temptation? What might his purposes be in that? Well, I believe his purpose is for you. Should he allow you for a moment, for a season to be tempted? His purpose is the same purpose that he had when the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness. And that is that you might triumph over the devil and triumph over your flesh and over sin. God will never bring you into temptation from which there is no way out, ever. 
There will never be a temptation that he brings you into where you will absolutely fail. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us this. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may, may be able to endure it. So what does this mean, brothers and sisters? Firstly, it means that temptation is gravely dangerous. It's not to be trifled with. It's not to be thought lightly of. It's not benign. Underneath that bait is a barbed hook with a fisherman, the devil on the other end of it, who wishes you ill. It is not benign, it's harmless. However, God has made every temptation that we face an opportunity. In every temptation, there is also an opportunity for glory, for victory, for triumph, to the glory of God. In every temptation you face, there is the opportunity for glory. You see now the will and purpose of the devil. And over that, for God's elect, his will and purpose to grow you, to strengthen you, to see you triumph over sin and over the devil, trampling on all of his works. You can see how the God plays devil like a pawn. Yes, temptation is dangerous. But even in that dangerous place, God has a mighty purpose for his church. Amen. He uses these moments to test our hearts. He uses these moments of temptation even to reveal to us where we're at on our journey. How many of you have had that? When you've thought pridefully, I'm over that sin. I never struggle with that sin anymore. And then boom, out of nowhere, you get smacked upside the head by that same flaming sin you thought you dealt with. Temptation is a means of keeping God's children humble. Temptation is a means of God testing our hearts, revealing to us where we're up to in our purity, in our holiness, in our devotion to God. Temptations are tests to a Christian. They're tests that we either pass or, or fail. But we can be sure that even through trials and temptations, God will never let us go. He'll never desert us in those temptations. And that's why we pray, lead us not and deliver us from evil. Martin Luther said, temptation is the best school into which a Christian can enter. Yet in itself, apart from the grace of God, it is so doubly hazardous that this prayer should be offered every day. Lead us not into temptation. Or if we must enter it, Lord, deliver us from evil. Graciously, every temptation is a lesson. We learn something. Either our growth is revealed or our weaknesses are exposed. And even in that, in that uh, end of having our weaknesses exposed, it, it gives us a place to go in prayer. It draws us to our knees. Let's answer the fourth question and then begin to move towards the close. How are we tempted? How are we tempted? You know, it's often said that any rope, any rope that you might find is only as strong as its weakest part. 
It's only as strong as its weakest part. And you are the same. You're only as strong as your weakest point. The weakest point where you've struggled before. That place that you know, Lord, I just long to be better in this area. That's how strong you are, your weakest point. And that's what makes temptation tempting, is that it comes to us at our weakest point. Sometimes that temptation will be obvious to you. You'll be tempted to do something, to act upon an impulse that you know is wrong. At other times, however, the temptation will be more low-key. It won't be super obvious. You can actually be led into temptation by receiving an unexpected bill. Out of the blue, it comes through the door, and it's like, where did this come from? That's a temptation. That's a temptation right there. That's a temptation to start blaming God, to get angry at God, Seasons of scarcity financially are actually really easy places to trip up into temptation. To get bitter, to get jealous, to get angry at God. I don't know about you, but I've been there. However, seasons of plenty, seasons of prosperity financially can sometimes be even more dangerous. I often think that maybe the Lord has not led me into many of those seasons precisely because of this. For the man or the woman who is constantly in a season of plenty and prosperity, the temptations are very real. The temptations to perhaps begin to take some of the glory that belongs to the Lord for our prosperity, for our increase. Not to rely on Him as much, but I don't need to pray as much got more abundance than I could have ever imagined. We begin to glory in ourselves and, and forget God. Many who have been super prosperous and super rich in the past and have professed the name of Jesus have fallen horrendously into all sorts of carnality because their money, their riches, their fame can get for them whatever they want. Sometimes prosperity can be to us the greatest temptation. Sometimes those temptations, those hooks are hidden deep in the bait. We don't see it. That's why we must pray. That's why we have to pray, do not lead us. Please don't lead us because we're not always going to see that hook. You know, Jesus prays something similar, doesn't he, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what, but what you will. As a Christian, being aware of your weaknesses, the frailty of your flesh, and of what tempts you is actually a good thing. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing to be aware of your weaknesses as a Christian. Why is that? Well, firstly, it means you know where to expect the attack. You know where to expect the attack. There's too much rubbish claptrap that's come into the church, you know, self-declarations, you're a good person, looking in the mirror, I believe in you, you're, a me- you're strong, the I am statements, now listen, I'm all for making biblical declaration, declarations rather in the mirror, right, but some of these ridiculous declarations 
that simply serve to pump up your ego. Now listen, you are a weak sinner saved by Christ. You're only as strong as your weakest point. You're only as strong as the last time you failed Christ in temptation. You need him. You'll never stop needing him. That's why Jesus prayed this, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup of the wrath that you have against sin, but not what I will, but what you will. As a Christian, this is how we pray about temptation. We're aware of our weaknesses, but we know that it's in our weakness. It's in our weakness that God's power is made perfect. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, it's sober-minded. We know that maybe on occasion we might be led into temptation by God, but we don't want that. I know my weaknesses well enough to know, Lord, if you can spare me that, please spare me that. But not my will, your will be done. God may decide to lead me in should he want me to triumph over the devil, to triumph over the sin, to triumph over my flesh. But as for me, I don't want that. <laughs> Lord, if you can spare me that, please do. This is the kind of prayer that we pray. It's one that we, we ought to clothe ourselves with every morning when we get up, before we go out the door and those hooks start descending into our waters with bait that looks great, right? Lord, lead me not. Lead us not into temptation. Again, in this prayer, it's a constant plural, isn't it? Lead us not. Not lead me. Lead us. So in our praying, we're not just to pray for ourselves, that we're not led in, personally led in, but also that our church family is not led into temptation. We protect one another in prayer. It's like, if you ever watched the movie 300? Maybe not all of you have, but I love that movie. Um, it's like a phalanx. It's, a, it's literally a wall of shields. And your shield doesn't protect you. It, pretends, it protects the man or the woman next to you. And likewise, their shield protects the man or the woman next to them. And that's how prayer is. We protect one another with our prayers. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Augustine, the church father, said this, let no enemy from without be feared. Conquer thine own self and the whole world is conquered. Conquer thine own self and the whole world is conquered. Now you and I both know it's impossible without the grace of God. It's impossible to do that, to wrestle the flesh and overcome it without the power of the Holy Spirit, which we do have, and the power of prayer. But with those two weapons, we can conquer the flesh. We can experience daily victory over sins that easily beset us. We can walk in victory. But prayer is vital to it. It's vital to it. It's so important. Let's not allow ourselves to walk through the week unprayed for in this area. Finally, brothers and sisters, and for any watching this afterwards, I have a sobering message, which is this. If you're sat here listening today and none of this rings a bell, and you think to yourself, well, I'm not really aware of any temptations in my life. I don't really struggle on a level anymore with sin. That's actually not a good sign 
that you never experience temptation. That's actually not a good sign. Only a spiritually dead person never feels temptation. First, you have to be aware of your sin before you can even pray, forgive us our trespasses. And only from a knowledge of the horror of continuing sin as a Christian, will you ever pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That prayer comes out of a heart cry of horror about indwelt sin as a Christian. When you've come to Christ, but still the grave clothes of your old life cling to you and you're casting them off only with disgust that sin as a Christian, will you be led to pray? Lord, please lead me not to temptation. I think it was John MacArthur who said, he said, you know what I'm looking forward to most about heaven? It's not perfect health. It's the absence of sin. The absence of sin. And I long to be free of sin. Let's pray. Father, we, we are so grieved when we do trip up and fail that test of temptation. But Lord, I pray that even if there are people here listening today that know that this past week, yeah, there have been moments when they've tripped up and they've misstepped and they've got in a, in a real state, Lord, and, and be tempted and sinned. May they know right now the abundant grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. May they know just how Joseph treated his brothers when they came to him and said, please just forgive us, we'll be your slaves. May they know that warm embrace of the Lord Jesus Christ who says, no, I'm not going to allow you to just be my slave, you're going to be my brother. Come in receive his embrace. So I pray if you've tripped up this week, be refreshed, be encouraged, know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and experience his, his touch. Be rejuvenated. And Lord, I pray for us as a church as we go from this place, Lord, that you might not lead us into any temptation, into any trials, into any tests, Lord God. But if you do, Lord, deliver us from evil. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Okay. Um, we're going to sing one last song together now. So if you'd like to, to stand, uh, we're going to sing a song together. And then we'll have teas and coffees afterwards.